Hello and welcome back to the podcast. You are listening to the Reversing Diabetes with Delane MD podcast, episode number 163. I'm your host, Dr. Delane Vaughn. I am a board certified family practice physician and a certified life and weight coach. I help people who want to reverse their type 2 diabetes. Primarily, I have a group that helps women reverse type 2 diabetes, come off their meds, and live a naturally healthy life. So if you're interested in living a naturally healthy life, you are in the right place. This is the podcast to listen to. Today, I'm going to answer an email from a listener. It's kind of an in-depth answer, and it was actually her idea to put this into a podcast, and I thought it was really great information, and so I'm going to go ahead and put that here. Before I get started, I do want to make sure that you know to follow me on Instagram at DelaneMD or follow me on Facebook at DelaneMD. That is where I will be posting any kind of seminars that I have coming up or five-day sessions that I have coming up. If you're interested in that information, make sure you're following on those social media platforms so you can figure out when those sessions will be. Okay, so let's dig in. I have an email from Kim or Kimberly. I'm not going to share her last name even though it was, again, her idea to go ahead and put this into the podcast and really a great idea. Her question is amazing and it points out a bunch of different pieces of information. So I'm going to read the email and then I'm going to go through um, good information that this email brings up and then kind of my recommendations and answers to her questions. So the email from Kimberly, I recently had my annual checkup completed and got my results on my basic blood work panel. I was very surprised to see that I have an A1C of 6.0, so pre-diabetic. A year ago, it was 5.7. I am reaching out to you to ask what you do in a case where a person is in overall good health in terms of weight, activity level, and diet, but has a pre-diabetic count. I'm puzzled and concerned. Here's some profile information. I am 5'4", weigh 120 pounds. I am 56. I have been on hormone replacement therapy for two years. I purposefully cut back on sugars, not enough apparently, a few years ago for fear of the midsection increase due to menopause. But I haven't experienced any weight gain. I walk my dog two miles every day. I run three times per week, about three to four miles each time. Plus, I take Pilates classes. I am borderline vegetarian, haven't eaten any red meat or pork in years, eat lots of veggies. Oh, and no one in my immediate family is diabetic. I had a great uncle on my father's side that was diabetic and that's all. So I guess I'm puzzled about this count and how I could go about reducing it. If I make an attempt to answer my own question, I would guess that it all comes down to hidden sugars. So three weeks ago, I made a bunch of changes. Vanilla yogurt is now plain yogurt with no granola. I wasn't eating white items anyway, but now not at all. Sandwiches are no longer. I eat turkey and cheese roll-ups with lettuce. I stick to healthy protein plus veggies. Trying to eliminate all carbs is not reasonable, nor is it sustainable. Couple of questions I am wondering. One, do I have the ability to check my own A1C levels myself? When and how? Two, how long, I'm guessing 90 days, before I could see a difference with my diet? Three, and how concerned should I be? Right now I'm very concerned. Maybe this could be a possible podcast topic. Are you generally active, fit, eat healthy, etc., but have a pre-diabetic level? 
What should you do? Maybe it's the same approach as other folks. Wasn't sure. Thanks in advance, Kimberly. Okay, so there's a lot of different pieces of information in here that's wonderful and amazing and I want to jump into. So first, I want to review the pathophysiology, so the biology of type 2 diabetes, and this is true for prediabetes, and this is true for gestational diabetes. In fact, this has a component to play in um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well in polycystic ovarian syndrome. So the reason that people get diabetic or prediabetic is because they have too much insulin in their system. So remember, this high insulin level causes our cells to be insulin resistant. That insulin resistance means that your cells no longer hear the message that insulin is trying to give to them and no longer function the way that we need them to, the way that our cells should function in the presence of insulin. So how this should be happening is when we eat, and it could be carrots, it could be potatoes, it can be bread, it can be crackers, it can be cupcakes. Our body breaks those carbohydrates down all to the same thing, which is glucose. Glucose is the cellular fuel that our bodies use. Now, it's not the only fuel that it can be used, but it is one form of fuel that our cells will use to do the work that a cell needs to do. So when we eat this food, our pancreas senses that this glucose is in our system, and the pancreas spits out insulin. The insulin goes all over our body to all different cells and binds to the cells and opens the cells up to take that glucose inside so the cells can then burn that off as fuel. It makes energy from it. That's how it should be working. When we have so much insulin in our system that our cells become insulin resistant, they're no longer opening up in the presence of insulin, so they no longer bring the glucose inside. They no longer burn it off as energy. What ends up happening is that that allows our glucose outside of the cell to climb quite high. That's what we pick up as diabetes. That's what we pick up as prediabetes. But the true cause of this is that there's too much insulin in our system. So that is what we have to fix. That's the physiology. That is the biology of diabetes, prediabetes, gestational diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's the biology of diabetes, prediabetes, and gestational diabetes, is that there's too much insulin in your system, your cells are insulin resistant, and that allows your blood sugar to climb quite high. And that's what we're picking up on our lab findings. So the goal is not to reduce your blood sugar, although that happens. And yes, there is a role for that, but the goal is to reduce your insulin level. That is the goal to fix all of this. So the question of how somebody can be a fit, active, healthy individual and still pre-diabetic, this goes to the fact that you have too much insulin in your system, okay? So you can maintain a normal healthy weight, although adipose storage happens via insulin. So those typically will run together, but it is entirely possible to develop insulin resistance even though you're active and you're healthy and you eat well and you're fit. It is completely possible to develop insulin resistance even though you're those things. I will offer, and I did offer this to Kimberly, I was the same way. I was never outside of a normal BMI. My BMI was higher than I wanted it to be, 
and more information has come out in the last year or two, more data that I've read, that a BMI 22 to 23 is probably really the ideal optimized health BMI. Having it 23 or below, 22 or below, is really the optimized BMI for optimal health. Um, I was always in the 23, 24, never above the 25 range unless I was pregnant. So I was in a similar range. I was healthy, like I looked physically fit, and I was a runner. I've ran since I was 15 years old. The joke that we talk about here that I've, I've said this jokingly repeatedly on the podcast, I'm the only person you'll ever meet, and this isn't true, but in my head, this is what I told myself. I was like, how is it possible I trained for a marathon to run 26.2 miles and managed to gain seven pounds during that time frame? I did that. That was my, my experience. I ran a marathon, and in the five, six months that I trained for the marathon, I actually ended up seven pounds heavier than before I started. And people want to be like, oh, you gained so much muscle. No, I didn't gain muscle. I believed that because I ran a long run on the weekends that I could eat an entire pizza. Because remember, I was going off that old calories in, calories out model, which is not accurate. I don't get to decide that I am going to burn off the pizza that I ate. That's not how it works. We don't get to intentionally decide which calories we're burning off. That's not how it works. And the process of our body bringing in a nutrient and processing that nutrient, i.e. that carbohydrate, involves the production and the release of insulin into our system. And that high insulin level is what causes us to store up energy as adipose or fat tissue. It's also what leads to insulin resistance. So recognize like you can be active and fit and healthy and still have this insulin resistance, which is what's leading to the type 2 diabetes, okay? So there's a couple different things that we see in the literature. There's this um, avatar or this, this idea, this concept of thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And what that really means is physically to look at a human, the human body looks fit and lean. However, their metabolic health is unhealthy. They are fat on the inside, meaning they're unhealthy on the inside, not that they're really fat. I really don't like the terminology fat. It's, I don't, I don't like to use it. You'll hear me talk about adiposity and having adipose tissue stored on your body. And the reason that I use that is because I don't like the term fat. So, but thin on the outside, fat on the inside. That's TOFI. If you look it up in the medical literature, this is a described uh, presentation or clinical presentation of human beings all over. They look fit and thin, but they are metabolically unhealthy. There's the UNC, the University of North Carolina study that was released, I think, in 2019 um, that revealed 88% of Americans, this is over 5,000 individuals that were compiled, over 88% of those individuals were metabolically unhealthy if you looked at all of the parameters that need to really be looked at to assess metabolic health. And what is that? That's things like insulin level, blood sugar level, triglycerides on a um, lipid panel. That's HDL on a lipid panel. Things like blood pressure. If you're looking at all of these parameters, they looked at all of them in 5,000 cases, and they found that 88% of people in those five, over 5,000 cases were not ideal in one of those five categories. 
There was a more recent study put out by Tufts University. It was actually um, published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in July of this year. That study revealed 93% of the U.S. adult population is not in good cardiometabolic health. That was what that study revealed. Again, if you're looking at the right parameters, this is what you're going to uncover. So seeing that the majority of the American population, the adult American population, is not in good metabolic health, suddenly it becomes very clear how generally active, fit, and healthy individuals might fall into this pre-diabetic or even the diabetic category. If you look at the obesity rate, we want to lump everybody who's obese into this unhealthy category. And whether that's true or not, and there's science behind that, and I'm not going to say that it's True or not true, I don't even want to split that hair right now. But if you look at the amount of Americans that are actually in that obese category, that number is closer to 66 or 70%. So that means that there's a chunk of Americans who are not in the obese category, but are in the metabolically unhealthy category. And that is where people are falling into this. I'm fit, I'm active, I'm thin, I think I'm healthy, what's going on here? So what's going on here is the foods that we eat make us sick. Recognize 90% of humans were not genetically predispositioned to become ill. That's not how we became the dominant species on the planet. We are becoming ill. 90% of us are becoming ill because of the way we live in a modern world is essentially what it comes down to. The foods that we eat in a modern world, the exercise that we do or don't do in a modern world, the stress we do or don't manage in a modern world, the sleep we do and don't get in a modern society. That is why we're getting sick, okay? That's where this metabolic disease is coming from. So the basic approach that I offered to Kimberly was one, count your carbs. Get an idea of how many carbs you were eating before the diagnosis of the A1C of 6.0, okay? So figure out what you were doing. And some, this is where like keeping a food journal is so very helpful, but I realize that most people aren't doing this. Go back and have a very honest look at what you were eating most days of the week. Yes, maybe breakfast and lunch were healthy and maybe dinner was healthy, but was there snacking going on? And if so, what was that snacking? Oh, well, it was just two or three candies. Add up all of the carbohydrates that you were eating in a day. If you were having bread on sandwiches, like add all of that up. Figure out how many carbohydrates you were eating on a day-to-day -day basis with the recognition that it's going to be high. The average American diet, the standard American diet, you know, the SAD diet, the standard American diet will consume somewhere between 250 and 350 grams of carbs per day. Now, I want to remind everybody that there's actually no requirement for carbohydrates in the human body in any way, shape, or form. I know, I know, everybody get excited. I know I'm going to hear some feedback on this, and that's totally fine. You can argue with me about this if you want. What I want you to hear from this is there's no amount of glucose that you need to consume because your body, your human body and its infinite abilities and wisdom will make all of the glucose you need. 
If you eat fat, if you eat protein, your liver can convert both of those into glucose, into energy for our bodies to use. There is no requirement for carbohydrates. What I will offer to you is that most of our micronutrients, our vitamins, our minerals, those sorts of things, our polyphenols, our phytochemicals, there are a lot of things that are carried into our body on carbohydrates. And that means that that part is required. That's fruits, that's vegetables. Those are things that are grown in the earth. None of this comes in cereal. None of this comes from even the healthiest of cereals. None of this comes in granola bars. None of this comes in kind bars. None of this comes in cliff bars. None of this comes in granola. None of this comes in processed foods. All of the things that you need from carbohydrates are coming on naturally occurring carbohydrates. So if you cannot find the carbohydrate that you are eating somewhere in the earth and pluck it and eat it in that form, it's probably not something you need to be consuming on a regular basis. Okay, this is my first suggestion, right? One, carbohydrates, count them, see how many you are eating. Two, clean up the carbohydrates that you are eating. They should not be in the form of anything that comes in a wrapper, a bag, or a box. That's pasta, that's rice, that's bread, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> Those are unnecessary carbohydrates. And I know it's not a popular thing to hear, but it is true. They are unnecessary carbohydrates. So start by counting up your carbs, cleaning up the carbs and the sources of your carbs, and then cut the number of carbs that you're eating by a third. So if you're eating 300 grams of carbs, I would cut it to at least 200 grams of carbs. If you're eating 150 grams of carbs, I would cut it to at least 100 grams of carbs. And then start measuring your fasting blood sugar every day. That's gonna be the most helpful blood sugar for you to check every day. That is going to be the slowest to drop, so don't get stressed out if you do this for five days and your fasting blood sugar is still 120. There's nothing wrong there. That's perfectly expected. But over a series of about two to three weeks, you should start to see that fasting blood sugar trend downward. If you really wanna feel good about yourself, also check it two hours after your meal. That blood sugar is gonna normalize very quickly. That blood sugar is gonna get 120 or less very quickly because you're not feeding yourself carbs. But when you start to see your insulin resistance, remember this is the problem, it's insulin resistance. When you start to see your insulin resistance reverse and normalize, which is what you wanna see, then you're gonna to start to see that fasting blood sugar drop down, okay? And you're gonna see this because you're not feeding your body carbohydrates all day long. You're not feeding highly processed carbohydrates, which are leading to the release of a high concentration of insulin into your system. So that's the first thing that you need to do is count the carbs, cut them by a third. Cut them by another third if you don't get the results that you want. After about two to three weeks, if you're not seeing the results you want, cut them by another third. So if you were eating 100, then you're gonna go down to 70 grams of carbs. You do that consecutively until you see the results that you want. The next thing I make sure you do is that you're eating foods that human beings should eat. So that's the cleaning up of the carbohydrates. That's eating foods that can be found in the earth somewhere. There is no bush anywhere on the earth that will serve you up a granola bar. So don't eat that food, okay? That's not food that should be a primary staple of your diet. The third thing I recommend is that you make sure you're not getting any calorie-free sweeteners. 
gums, mints, crystal light type drinks, diet cokes, those kinds of things. Recognize that anytime, this doesn't happen for all human beings, but I would offer if you're the kind of human being that's making too much insulin, this is probably happening for you. Anytime that your tongue comes into contact with something sweet, it sends a message to your brain, hey, there's something sweet in here. And your brain says, oh, right, we better tell the pancreas to start making insulin. It sends a message down to the pancreas and the pancreas starts to spit out insulin. So remember, we're trying to fix that insulin component. Even if there's no carbohydrates coming in with those non-caloric sweeteners, you may still be spitting out insulin. And that insulin then is driving the insulin resistance in your cells. And that's what we're trying to fix. So I highly recommend cutting those things out. Again, this is not a consistent, there's a term for this, and it's not a consistent finding in every human being. I would offer though, if you're the human being that's insulin resistant, likely this is a finding that you would have if we were to test it in a lab. The fourth thing that I have everybody look at is how much sleep are you getting? The human animal requires somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep at night. If you are getting six hours of sleep at night, that is a physiologic stressor that's occurring in your body and you are getting a high cortisol release and that high cortisol release drives blood sugars up, drives insulin production and keeps us insulin resistant. You need sleep. You're a human being. There's nothing. <laughs> I know out there, there are people like, no, 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 no. I can run on four hours of sleep. No, you can't. No more than you can go throughout your day without breathing air. You're a human being and you're bound by certain biological laws. And one of them is that you need to sleep. So if you're not getting enough sleep, I would start doing that. And then lastly, similarly to sleep, are you managing your stress effectively? Stress will release cortisol. Go back, find podcasts that I've done on these. They're all out there. I did one recently on sleep and stress. There was two different podcasts, one on sleep, one on stress. Find them. It talks about all of this. Okay. If you are not managing the sleep and the stress, you will likely have insulin resistance, especially if you're starting insulin resistant. So the answer to some of the questions that she, that Kimberly has in her email, one, do I have the ability to check my A1C levels myself when and how? Most people in their area will have what's called a reference lab, two major reference labs that are available across the, across the United States are LabCorp and then Quest. There are others, but these are the two that I'm aware of. They will usually let the patients order their own labs. You have to have a doctor to send it to. You may have to pay for it out of pocket. Um, they call this a client-directed order usually. So ask, call around, see if you have one of these labs and call and have it ordered. And then you can just walk in and get it done whenever. Um, the A1C will change in the 90 days and that was, um, that was Kimberly's next question, how long? Yes, it takes 90 days for it to change. And that's just an effect of the measurement of the hemoglobin A1C and the technology of the hemoglobin A1C. Kimberly's third question was, how concerned should I be right now? My answer to that was not to be an alarmist, but you should be pretty concerned. Because we know insulin resistance has to be present for about a decade prior to seeing the blood sugars start to rise. We're seeing that happen more rapidly. You know, I diagnosed an eight-year-old with type two diabetes, which is again, insulin resistance. In my clinical practice um, as a physician, I did this. This is, I don't know, probably in 2019, 2020. 
recognize that kiddo hadn't even been on the planet for a decade. So that insulin resistance developed quite quickly. And again, this is an element of how much we're eating processed foods and refined uh, sugars. So it can develop more quickly. My suspicion for Kimberly and what she's told me is that this insulin resistance has probably developed in the last 10 years. But recognizing that hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance have long-term damaging effects on the human body. Insulin, when present in an insulin-resistant human, is inflammatory. So you're having inflammatory effects. Also, insulin resistance is the underlying cause of dementia. Also, insulin resistance and inflammation is the underlying cause of cardiac disease. Also, insulin resistance is the underlying cause of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So recognize this high insulin level, which is the cause of your blood sugars being high at this point, is causing a lot of other downstream effects. So I would say that I would be very worried about getting this fixed. But again, recognizing you're not fixing the blood sugar. You need to fix the insulin issue, okay? So lastly, before we um, leave Kimberly's questions, I do want to also add, she was asking about labs. I would order the A1C, the hemoglobin A1C I think is important. And then the other thing, which is probably a better indicator of your insulin resistance is a fasting serum insulin level. People will look at you like you have three heads when you order this. Doctors don't even know what to do with some of these numbers. That's okay. You can go to the lab, you can do this client-directed order and get your fasting serum insulin level. That is going to tell you a better indicator about whether you're insulin resistant. The goal for that number is less than seven. My reading is actually, it doesn't get picked up on the lab machinery because it's so low. And I'm not saying that you need to be that low, but just recognize how low you can get it is so that it's not even picked up. If you have a fasting serum insulin level greater than seven and certainly greater than 10, you are likely insulin resistant, okay? The lab finding will likely report 15 or higher as abnormal. Recognize that that's not optimal and it's not consistent with the medical literature out there about insulin resistance. All right, I hope that all of this has been helpful to everybody. Kimberly, if you're listening, I hope you found this helpful. I know I answered most of your questions in our emails. If you have questions, email them to me. I'm serious. Delane at Delane MD. I will likely put them on a podcast. I will likely make a podcast out of them because if you have the question, likely somebody else does, but I will certainly answer your email. So email me any questions that you have. God forbid you emailed me and I didn't get back to you. It just got lost in the shuffle. Email me again, Delane at DelaneMD.com. Just forward it again. I'm happy to answer all the questions. Remember, the reason I do this podcast is because I truly believe that every human being out there has the opportunity to live a naturally healthy life if we can just get out of our body's way and let our biology kick in and do what it does. That is what this podcast is here for. If you're interested in my group program, if you're a woman with type 2 diabetes and you're done with it and you're ready to come off your meds, send me an email, delane at delanemd.com. We'll get you set up for a consult so you can hear how my program will help you and we can get you started on that. I hope this was helpful. I will talk with you next week. Bye-bye.